Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung upon your faces, the dung of your offerings, and I will put you out of my presence. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may hold, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear And he feared me, he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in your instruction. Last week, we focused on the curse of careless worship from chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. And we saw Malachi driving the word of God against the priests in verse 6 of that chapter. If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But the sense you get as you read the rest of chapter 1 is that it's not just the priests who are coming in for the indictment. For example, when you read verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Now, I think there were a lot of cheats out there, not just in the priesthood. A lot of people had flocks of sheep and they loved the prophets of those sheep and they took the no good sheep and gave them to God and, and kept the, the biggest profits for themselves. But in today's text, it is even more directly focused on the priests exclusively. Verse 1 makes that real clear. And now, O priests, this command is to you. No, that raises a question for us. For whom does this text have relevance today? Are there any priests today? What became of the Old Testament priest? Is their office picked up in the New Testament or in the church in Minneapolis today? To whom should I address this text today? That's the first question we have to to try to answer. Well, when you go to the New Testament, what do you find? with regard to to priests in the church. What you find in summary is this. There is no official priesthood in the New Testament. 
That is, no officers in the church, pastors, elders, deacons, are called priests in the New Testament at all. Anywhere in the New Testament, there is no official priesthood. Why? Here's a word from Hebrews. The priests were many in number in the Old Testament because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ is the one replacement, the official replacement for the Old Testament priesthood for two reasons. His life is indestructible. He never dies. And his sacrifice was absolutely all sufficient and once for all and complete at Calvary. And therefore, there is no official priesthood in the Christian church, according to the New Testament. Here's another word from from Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy place. Once for all, he entered into that place where priests used to go. Taking not the blood of calves and bulls, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's finished. The priesthood is over because the offering up of Christ himself and the interceding of Christ in heaven now in the holy place has put an end to the official priesthood. Now, let me apply this very practically to the ecclesiastical condition in which we find ourselves today. Any church today that emphasizes the priesthood of the clergy minimizes the once-for-all work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Take the Catholic Church, for example. And let me preface this, because there are always Catholics in our service. I got reproved by one after the last service. Uh, I have no personal vendetta against a Catholic, nor would I rule any Catholic by virtue of their belonging to the Catholic Church out of Christianity or out of the kingdom. But I have a vendetta against Catholic doctrine, which I will not retract until from Scripture I am shown wrong. And this morning, the point is, the Catholic Church elevates the priesthood. It is of extraordinary importance in the Catholic Church Precisely because the Mass is of extraordinary importance. The Mass is a real sacrifice. The body and the blood or the bread and the cup are transubstantiated into the real body and blood and offered up to God as a sacrifice for sins and attendance on that Mass and participation in that sacrifice by a duly ordained priest is of the essence of being forgiven. And that minimizes the once-for-allness of Jesus' death on the cross. That's my point. It minimizes it. It makes, I would say, light historically 
of the once for all achievement of Jesus Christ and our orientation on him and his dying and rising and interceding at the right hand as all sufficient. Christ ended the priesthood because he ended the sacrifices. Therefore, the New Testament does not have a priesthood officially. I say officially because, as you know well, at least in three places in the New Testament, twice in First Peter and no, five places, twice in First Peter and three times in the book of Revelation, you Christians are called a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, a kingdom priest to our God, which simply means that you don't need any mediator between you and God, save the one high priest, Jesus Christ. So in a sense, Christ is our one high priest. We are the Levitical priesthood. We enter with our high priest into the very holy of holies and boldly lay our claims before God in the name of Christ and receive grace to help in time of need. And we have no need of a human confessor and we have no need of a mediation of this forgiveness in a weekly sacrifice called the Mass. And therefore, there is no need for a priesthood in the Christian church. And it is no accident, I believe, that the name was dropped in the New Testament, save for the people of God. It is not a clerical title in the New Testament. I don't believe it should be in the Christian church. Now, that raises another question. Are there any duties of the priest in the Old Testament that are taken over and continued in the pastoral ministry in the New Testament? And the answer of our text this morning is a resounding yes. Let's look at verse 7. Of chapter 2, and you'll see this right away. Verse 7 of Malachi 2 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. In other words, the priests were teachers in the Old Testament. And this part of their duty is continued on into the church of the New Testament. And we know this because it says, for example, in, in Ephesians 4:11, that Christ, when he ascended on high and took his priestly office up at God's right hand and in the Holy of Holies, gave to the church pastors and teachers to equip the priests, the saints, the priests for the work of the ministry. Or it says in 1 Timothy Uh, Chapter 3, verse 2, that there ought to be overseers in the church who are able to teach. Or it says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, that the church should give honor to elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, yes, there is a group of men in the church charged with the office of teaching and moral leadership in the church, and they pick up that dimension of the Old Testament priesthood, but the New Testament very wisely, under the inspiration of the Spirit, drops the title priest, lest there be any sacrificial dimension to this pastoral ministry. So I conclude from Malachi 2, 1 to 9, in reflecting on its relation to the New Testament, that it is a very relevant text for us today, Concerning the pastoral ministry, 
and that the failure in the duties of the priestly ministry discussed in um, verses 1 to 9, which all focus on the ministry of the word, would be just as much failures today in the pastoral ministry. And therefore, this is an incredibly timely word. But here's another question that I raise before I get into the text. Why should you care? You aren't pastors. Most of you aren't. I have a few listening. But most of you are not clergy, pastors, call of God to be one of those pastor teachers who will give account one day for the souls of the flock. Why should you care about a message that relates to the pastoral failures or the priestly failures in this text? Four reasons why you should care. Number one, I'm going to die someday, and it will be your responsibility to call a new preaching pastor. And most churches are incredibly ill-equipped to do that. Incredibly ill-equipped. Which is why so many pastors are called who are doctrinally unfit for the work. Therefore, if you are to fulfill that congregational charge to call a pastor, you should know the biblical vision of the pastoral ministry. Second reason. You should pray for the pastoral leadership of the church. But how do you pray with intelligence, insight, power, confidence, if you don't know the biblical vision of the pitfalls and dangers and possibilities and hopes and dreams of the pastoral ministry? Third, it is your biblical responsibility to hold the pastoral staff accountable to fulfill its biblical mandate. Now, that might sound like a contradiction to Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, submit yourselves to the pastoral ministry. Be a, be a submissive and responsive people. I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think it's possible to have a submissive, that is, supportive attitude toward the pastoral leadership of the church and still be the ones who have the last word in holding pastors accountable. You see, in the congregational form of church government, which we have and which we believe is biblical, the buck stops in the pew. That is, the people, the body of Christ, are the last court of appeal in church discipline. That's very plain from Matthew 18, 17. And the last court of appeal in matters of doctrine and in matters of order. You must hold us accountable to fulfill the biblical vision of the pastoral ministry. But how are you going to do that if you're not taught what the biblical vision is of the pastoral ministry? That's number three. Number four is this. It is so encouraging to the pastoral staff when people respond with intelligence and understanding to their ministry. What I have in mind here is a terrific, grand, joyful union of vision in the pew and in the pulpit and in the hospital room and at funerals and at weddings and in the counseling office and at fellowship gatherings, this deep, shared, harmonious vision of why we do what we do. 
If there is a common, deeply held vision about why pastors do what they do, and the people in their faces, in their demeanor, in their whole deportment toward the leadership and each other, show that they are affirmative and with understanding are excited about what the ministry is doing, well, it's just tremendously encouraging and life-giving to the pastoral ministry. But how will that vision of understanding and camaraderie ever emerge in a church where people are never taught the biblical vision of the ministry of the Word? Reason number four. It's relevant. If the church is to be what it's going to be, this text, though it's addressed to me and these men on the platform with me, it is very relevant for you. Um... I suppose I've left out the reason that most of you would have given for why this text on priestly failure is so relevant in 1987, haven't I? If I had asked you, you would have said, because there's so much of it and it's so public. 1987 will go down as the all-time low in American public religion. Of priestly failure. I was reading an essay by Errol Holtz, a pastor in Liverpool. He said, It is a morbid and depressing fact that when it comes to adultery, there are too many casualties among pastors. Ministers are just as vulnerable as others. No area, no country, no denomination is immune. The damage done in each case is irreparable. The breakdown, as far as ministry is concerned, final. This is a distasteful subject, but we cannot shirk it. The matter demands faithful treatment. Let him who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And just this week, I was on the phone to a pastor friend of mine in another city who told me, of how a few weeks ago he went to preach some special meetings in a church on the East Coast. And while they were having the meetings, he took a long walk with this pastor of this other church up in the hills, and they spoke together about the incredible prevalence of moral failure among pastors today. And they discussed why this would be, and mutual insights were shared as to why it's happening. And when he got back, Two weeks later, he got a phone call that this man was being forced to leave his church because he was having an affair with the woman in the church. And he had looked this friend of mine straight in the face and not confessed it as they discussed the struggles of that issue. But I want to caution us about making a mistake at this point. And the mistake would be that moral failure is the worst failure and the one with the worst consequences of the pastoral ministry. It isn't. It's great. It is probably permanently damaging. It's not the worst failure. The failure that has the longest consequences is doctrinal failure. I mean, if I committed adultery, if my whole marriage fell apart, and if I had to leave this church, that would be far better, far better than if for the next 20 years I preached falsehood in this pulpit. 
The Great Awakening ended in the 1740s. You remember this? And do you know what happened after the great wave of awakening was passed? There were many clergy in the 1750s, 60s, 70s who reacted very negatively to the strong Reformation Calvinistic foundation of that revival movement in those days in the preaching of Edwards and Whitfield and the tenants. They reacted so strongly that they moved into Arminianism, which didn't even exist in this country for a century of our existence just about. Into Arminianism and then led by Charles Chauncey in Boston, a liberal congregational minister, right on through Arminianism into Unitarianism and Universalism. And today, 200 years later, you can feel the ice in New England air. I was out there three weeks ago talking to pastors and speaking in three different contexts about this. And all of them trace it back to the latter part of the 18th century and what has happened in the churches as pastor after pastor defected from great Reformation doctrines and embraced liberal and Unitarian thinking in New England. And it is there, two centuries of destruction, would that Charles Chauncey had only committed adultery. And so the worst priestly failure is a failure in the ministry of the word and truth. When God predicted the ruin of his people in Amos 8, he said it would happen by a famine and not a famine of food. Listen. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. That's the famine that will destroy the people of God. The most devastating priestly failure is the failure of the word. And that brings us to our text. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And we only have time for one or two little observations about the failures this morning. And then next Sunday, we'll finish talking about the failures and move into what I hope would be a grand description of the successful possibilities of the pastoral ministry as they're described here. What you see, for example, in, in verses 2, 8, and 9, are five failures of priestly ministry in the Old Testament, which would apply today to pastoral ministry. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, you can study this this week, there is a description of a successful priesthood. So what I'd like to look at with you in the last few minutes is just two verses, really one verse, verses 1 and 2. Let's read them together. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. There are two priestly failures mentioned in verse two. Did you see them? Number one, the failure to listen to God. And number two, the failure to have a heart for God's glory. 
Let's talk about those just for a moment, one at a time. First, if you will not listen, I will send the curse upon you. You see, a great danger in the pastoral ministry of the word is that a pastor will have the voice of God drowned out by the voice of economics, the voice of politics, the voice of entertainment, and the voice of the clamor of the ministry. One of the most frightening things in my life is the possibility that I might wake up some morning, read the sacred page, and hear no voice from God. It's all over. Why is it all over? Why would that be so terrible? Look at the last line of verse 7 for the answer to that question. Who, Who is a priest? Who is a pastor? Who are the ministers of the word? They are the messengers of the Lord of hosts. Now, there's a difference between being a lecturer and being a messenger. A herald comes into a city and he says... Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, in the name of the king, I read. And he gives a message to the people. A lecturer takes a book and explains sentences. Now, a sermon ought to have a good dose of teaching in it. Because you've got to root your message in the word. But preaching is different from lecturing. And if a man doesn't come to a people of God without a message from God, he is no pastor. He is no priest. He is no minister of the word in the pulpit. But you can't herald what you don't hear. And so the great failure of the priesthood and the pastor it would be The holy book has no voice anymore from God. It is dead. It is blank. It is silent. And the second failure with which I close is also here in verse 2. If you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send the curse upon you. Now note very carefully the wording of that sentence. The point of that sentence is not that the pastor fails to make the glory of God the center of his theology or his preaching. That's not the point. The point is he fails to lay it on his heart. You know what that means. He has no passion that God be glorified. The glory of God may be a part of his theology. It may be the center of his theology. But he has no heart for the glory of God. It doesn't burn in his soul that God is dishonored by sin and unbelief. And so the question you have to ask as the congregation who must hold your ministry accountable to have the the biblical vision is, can you hear it in his praying as well as his preaching? Can you hear it in his study? Can you hear it in his playing as well as his praying? Does it come out 
again and again and again the glory of God like the the dial on a on a magnet or on a compass that just zeroes in on a magnet of truth or like a weather vane that that's blowing in a heavenward wind does it come back again and again from the leadership of this church that the glory of God is the great passion of the people of God and the spokesman of God. Surely, surely, the most important thing for you to watch for is, am I praying? Am I holding accountable? Is my pastor laying it to heart to glorify the name of God? So I just end with this admonition. Three things. Desire that kind of pastor in order to have a biblical desire. Second, be that kind of people who love the word and the glory of God. Third, pray for that kind of pastor until you have that kind of pastor. To the glory of the name of our great God and Savior. Amen. Let's stand for a moment of silence. May I just commend 30 seconds of silence to you for you to talk to God and deal with any relevance this message may have for you in particular and for our church. Let's pray together in silence for a moment. It may assist our closing response to this message by singing a prayer together that you all know if I put the words in your mouth. In your word, Lord, be glorified. Those two dimensions have been the dimensions on which we've closed. The word of God and the glory of God. Let's make it our closing prayer as we sing together.